And so we have, over the last number of weeks, been looking at faith like a child and trying to differentiate between the idea of being childlike and childish. Clearly, God's Word makes it, uh, tells us that we are not to be childish. That's not a good thing. But to be childlike is what God wants us to be in a lot of different ways. And so we've been looking at different ways to do that. I don't know about you, but I've learned a lot just by thinking this through and preaching these messages about some of the ways we can be more childlike, like being quick to forgive. We've all seen children do that. I mean, get their feelings hurt, be upset, and yet as soon as the words I'm sorry are said, boom, okay, it's all good, it's all forgotten, and they just move right on as opposed to where we sometimes hold on to things. Or, or the, uh, the concept of them being teachable and humble. We talked about that. You know, children are so good at, at being like a sponge, just taking in and learning and assimilating new things and new ideas and being humble, quick to defer to those that are in charge or that are above them that they should. Should. Uh, Rob preached a couple of weeks ago about being unoffendable, how much we should be like children in that way. We talked also about how they are quick to be honest, how bluntly they're just not very good at lying. You don't come out of the womb good at lying, and that's a learned behavior as adults that we develop. But we should be more like children. We should not be comfortable with or good at lying. We should be quick to be honest like children are. Um, last week we talked about being brave and courageous. Young David fought Goliath and was brave and courageous because he was connected to the Lord, because he trusted in God. We can learn so much from children in different ways. And today I want to talk about what we just saw the children talk about, and that is how to be joyful. How to be more joyful. Does anybody in the room think, you know what, it would do me well. I would like to learn how to be more joyful, to have more joy in my life. Anybody? All right, a lot of us, probably all of us really in that respect could grow. And children tend to be more happy. They tend to be more joyful than us older people. Now, at least the children that are growing up in a healthy home, which not all do. That's a whole other topic. But the children that grow up in the kind of home God designed for them tend to run and jump and skip and sing and laugh and just have a good time with life. They're quicker to be joyful than most of us. And I think we need to learn from them. The question is why? How? How do they do that? Well, I'll tell you this. I don't have my head in the sand. I know that part of that is because they have not yet been burdened by a lot of the things that tend to burden us. Um, they are ov often oblivious to and unaware of some of the heavy things in life that potentially threaten to rob us of our joy or hold us back or, or weigh us down. I mean, children are not really all that aware of, and they definitely don't talk often about some of the things that we focus on. I mean, the, the, the diagnosis of cancer, or the latest mass shooting, or institutionalized abortion, and the epidemic of that, marriage struggles, and divorce, they don't know anything about that, or financial struggles and pressures, or unfaithful friends that can scar and hurt you. Or maybe, most of all, I mean, the personal sins that seem so embedded into our bones that they just won't die, and we keep struggling and re returning to our own folly and our own mistakes. The kids that I know don't tend to dwell on or focus on these things. And I think if the happy children, if all those happy children of the world did focus on all those things, they probably would not run and jump and skip and sing and dance and all that as often as they do. But then again, let me ask you this. Do you think that God really intends for all of us, as the grown-ups in the room, do you think He intends for all of us to carry 
and be weighted down and burdened by all these things in that list that could have gone on and on. Do you think he really wants that for us? Or does he maybe want us instead to, as Jesus just talked about, as we just read that, to be more joyful, to be more childlike, even though we are aware of and, and understanding of all these heavy things that tend to, to rob us of our joy? Might that be part of what he meant? Maybe some of the why behind his words when he told us, as we just read, to be like little children, to receive the kingdom of God like little children. Again, his word tells us also in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say it, rejoice. And that's because he knows that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's Nehemiah. He tells us clearly these things. In fact, if my math is correct, the Bible tells us at least 257 times. It's a pretty big number. 257 times to be joyful, even though God clearly knows that all of these joy suckers, these things that are in our life, are there. He knows all about them. I mean, Jesus is the one who said, in this world you will have trouble. It's not you might. You will. You will have trouble. But take heart, he said, because I have overcome this world. This world is not your home. We are just foreigners passing through. So therefore, we do not lose heart, as God tells us in 2 Corinthians 4. We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Do we have that on the screen there? 2 Corinthians 4, do not lose heart because outwardly we are wasting away. You know, in other words, we start dying as soon as we start breathing. That's kind of what Rob was saying, right? We start dying as soon as we start breathing. That's just the way this world works. But inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That reminds me of of what Paul said in Romans 12 about being renewed and, and renewing our mind, being transformed. Anyway, and he goes on to say here in 2 Corinthians 4, for our light and momentary troubles, which you know what that means, right? It just means your life, your whole life, because our whole life is full of troubles, but they're light and momentary because this life is brief. This, that's what this life is. It is light and momentary compared to eternity, which is what God goes on to say through Paul. They are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, or outweighs all of this. Because we are, again, citizens of heaven, God's, te- God's Word tells us. Peter tells us in chapter 2 of his book that we are foreigners and exiles in this world. We need to think of ourselves as that way, in that way. So, verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on the things our eyes can see, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal, it's like what Jesus said in, in, in uh, Matthew 6 when he said, where, it's where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves cannot break in. That should be our focus. That's where our real home is. And that's what we are uh, mostly needing to keep our mind fixed on. And that's where our joy comes from when we do that. So in the context of understanding joy even more, even in the middle of difficulty and struggle that we all have, can I take you to a really cool chapter in God's Word? It's Psalm chapter 100. If you have your Bible, turn to it. Psalm chapter 100 is just five short verses. They'll be on the screen as well if you want. But Psalm chapter 500 gives us what I would call is a partial formula for joy. Now, God's Word, like I said, 257 or more verses in God's Word about being joyful. So this is just a small part of it. But let me show you some of what God says and and what I would call is a partial list or a partial formula of how to be joyful. Let me read it for you out loud, and then we'll talk about it. Psalm 100, verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. 
Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. There's a lot in here. So if you have your notes, turn to it. Because I want you to fill in the blanks on a couple of things here that maybe, maybe God wants you to go home and meditate on and think about. Again, not an exhaustive list, but here is... Some of what I think God wants us to understand about how to grow in the context of being joyful. First of all, I would just tell you this. You need to make some noise. You need to make some noise. Look at the first verse. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Or if you're reading in your own Bible, the New International Version says it like this. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Or the New King James puts it similar. uh, Make a joyful shout to the Lord. You know, I looked that up, and interestingly, the original Hebrew word for shout or noise, it's kind of an interesting word. The original word picture is one of breaking or splitting something. So literally, I think God wants us to make uh, uh, earth-shattering noises or, or um, uh, uh, ear-splitting noise. In the same way, we see that same word being used by Joshua. Look at this. In Joshua chapter 6, if you know that story when the walls of Jericho came down, look at how that same word, Hebrew word, is used. And the seventh time it was so. When the priests blew the trumpets, uh, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, there's that familiar word, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. Then, after they made a lot of noise, then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Isn't that cool? So Christian, I think we need to make some noise. I think you need to make some noise. Let me, let me, you can do it right now, but let me ask you this. When's the last time, or think about this, when have you made a lot of noise? Maybe it was at a ball game, right? Isn't that pretty common? Or maybe a birthday party, or there are a lot of things. But maybe at a ball game when you saw a game-winning touchdown, you know, or a last-second three-pointer to win the game, or, you know, or a game-winning home run, something like that. And I've been there and done that. I think that's cool. I do that in front of the television all by myself sometimes. My wife thinks I'm weird, but I do that sometimes. And my point is, I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think we need to remember that God wants us to understand there are more important things in this world than sports. Amen? There are. As God's Word says also, Maybe you haven't heard this verse, but let me quote it for you. The Bible says clearly, Make a joyful noise unto me with all thy breath and all thy lungs, for I doeth much greater deeds than the athletes on the field of balls whose pockets are much too full anyway. That's from Second Mesmeriah, chapter 3. Okay, so I made that up, obviously. I'm glad you caught it. I was worried you wouldn't, but anyway. You know, so, you know, or, or I put it like this. As the Lord's great servant and wise spokesperson a.k.a. my wife, Kim Park, has often rhetorically asked her husband, she goes, you know, how does that uh, sport game, that game, you know, whether they win or lose, how does that have any impact on your life? Does it really change anything whether they win or lose? I mean, that's her point to me, her rhetorical question to which, of course, you know, there's a wise answer and then there's what I usually say as well. But, but the point is, if we can get so excited about a game 
with balls, you know, being played with or whatever, can we not, should we not make a lot more noise for Almighty God when we think of what He has done for us? Somebody say yes. All right, yes, we should. That's a good time to shout and sing and praise. And if you want to get up and do a dance, you can even do that. But the point is we need to get excited. And I think God's Word says, clearly here and other places, we need to make noise. We really do. We need to make noise. Walls fall down. Strongholds fall down when we worship God and praise Him in that way. So let me give you an assignment. How about sometime this week, over the next six or seven days, how about this? Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, in your own living room or maybe it's out and about somewhere. I don't know. But how about when you stop and ponder and think about how awesome your God is and maybe think of something he has done in your life, answered prayer in some capacity, or you just look at the beauty of our mountains or, or you, um, you know, look at the wonder in your spouse and a big smile on their face or your children or whatever it may be. Can you just pretend you're at the ball game and make some noise? I mean, really hoop and holler. Now, you might get some weird looks if you do it out in public, but either way, make some noise because our God deserves to be worshiped with all we've got, all of our heart and soul and even our lungs as well. I think that's the first thing we see in this really cool short little chapter of Psalms 101. Verse 2 says this, Serve the Lord with gladness. With gladness. Or you could say with joy. Serve the Lord with gladness or joy. Let me ask one more time. Show of hands. How many of you would like to grow in the context of smiling more, being more joyful, being thankful, being happy? All those, you know, those words kind of overlap. All right, if that's you, point number two, if you're filling in the blanks, would be this. I think you need to learn to trust in the counterintuitive power of serving. Let me say that again. Trust in the counterintuitive power of serving. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 9. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you want to be first, you've got to be last, he says. Let me ask, again, show of hands, we're going to do this a couple of times. Let me ask, how many of you think it's natural and intuitive to let others go first? To just always say, I defer, I, I want somebody else to go first. Oh, come on, put your hands down. Do you really think that? You need, to go, you need to go to a school, an elementary school, and watch kids line up for lunch or for recess. You think it's natural to say, yeah, go ahead, go first. I'd love to be last. No, nope, we don't do that. You can learn to do that, but it is not natural, I don't think. I don't think it's natural to defer to others in that way. And yet, let me ask again for another show of hands, and I'm not picking on you. Sorry for those who just raised their hands, even though you were wrong. That's okay. You know, it's okay. But let me ask this, because this one, there is no right or wrong answer. Let me ask, how many of you, despite the fact that it's not natural are still plugged in and serving in some capacity somewhere. Maybe here, maybe somewhere else, but you're making a voluntary choice to serve other people. A lot of you. What's wrong with you? Why do you do that? That's not natural. It's not intuitive. We don't naturally do that. Why do you do that? It's the money. It's the All right. Well, that's not volunteer anymore, so I don't think that counts. If you're getting paid to serve, I don't think it's serving. But anyway, um I'll tell you why you do it. It's because you get this already. You are learning. You have already learned to trust in the counterintuitive power of serving. You have learned to trust God's word when he teaches us to think more highly of others than of ourselves. You have learned what Jesus meant when he said, referring to himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even Jesus, the creator of the cosmos, did that for us. He serves. And you've learned to understand that that's the way it works best. You know, my experience as a pastor now for about 28 years full-time in ministry is that the people in the church who serve in the church are generally the ones who are happy and smiling in the church. The people in the church who come focused on what's in it for me, and I just want to be fed. I have a lot of needs, and I need my needs met, and and I'm just going to sit and take it in. Not that that's all bad, but if that's exclusively your focus, those people generally, my experience of 28 years, are people that don't get involved and generally don't even stay very long. They stay for a while, and then they go, you know what? This church is not fixing everything wrong with me, and I'm going to go down to the next one because that one will probably be better, and then that one's the same. And then they go to the next one, and they just continue to hop around from church to church because they are focused on the wrong thing, and they are failing to understand or to trust in the counterintuitive power of serving that God's Word makes clear over and over and over in Scripture. Those of you who are not yet plugged in, when I ask you to show your hands, you know, half did, maybe half did not. Those of you who are not plugged in and serving somewhere, I want to talk to you for just a second and tell you this. It's not to try to make you feel guilty, but it's for your own benefit. I tell you this, you need to learn to plug in. You need to learn to serve. You need to sign up and get involved in some capacity. Maybe it's here, maybe it's somewhere in the community, but you need to serve others. Not only because it's good for the others, you know, that have a need of some capacity that you can help meet, but again, because it's what, it's what feeds you, it's what helps you. You grow when you serve others. Those of you who are doing it, say amen. All right, because you know what I'm talking about. Those who are serving understand this. It, there is a joy. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, and I think he had this concept in mind. It is joyful. It is a powerful thing when you plug in and serve somewhere else. Uh, there are a lot of opportunities, and I, I could go on for a long time, but let me just say this. Uh, where's Vaughn? I saw her. There, Vaughn, wait, stand up for just a second. Vaughn in our office almost every Monday through Thursday. Vaughn, she does a great job. Now, you don't have to clap for her. She gets paid for it. It's okay. So, you know, whatever. But, 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 but the reason I wanted her to stand up is because I want you to know who she is. And if you want to serve and plug in, go talk to Vanna. She can tell you all about whether it be helping serve communion or preparing that or picking up after all of us at the end of the service or on and on. There are lots of lists. How about Janelle and Russ? Russ, are you in here? You were here earlier. Usually they're second service people. All right, Russ and Janelle Rutledge lead our are greeters ministry, the people who stand at the door and welcome people. And they would like to take that up a notch or several notches. Instead of having two people at the door, they'd like to have four, six, eight, I don't know, but people that that help others and make people feel welcome because we only get one chance to make a first impression. Anyway, they would love to have more help with that. I talked to them this week. We had lunch and we talked about it. And basically, they just need more bodies, more people that they can put in that rotation to do that once in a while. They're on, how about Debbie Blackwell? Uh, Bear Paul's down here. His wife, Debbie's downstairs working with our children and does an incredible job. And she's got dozens and dozens of people that are plugged in and helping, but she could use dozens more and plug in more people to help with the kids. And it is such a joy to work with them. And it is not a life sentence. It's not like till death do us part. She would plug you in for a temporary time and let you check it out and see how that works and whether it suits you or whatever. But talk to one of these. And my point would be, you need to learn to trust in the counterintuitive power of serving, remembering this verse and so many others, when in Psalms chapter 100, verse 2, the Bible says, God says, serve the Lord with gladness. 
I'm, I think the word serve and gladness go together, and we need to understand that. All right, verse 2 continues, and it says this, come into His presence with singing, with singing. It kind of goes back to verse 1, I mean, making noise. With singing is a good thing. Um, how many of you like to sing? I love to sing. I love our worship team. Boy, I tell you what, did their tight harmonies, wasn't that awesome today? Wait till you hear the last song as we close our service together. But fantastic. My dad loves to sing. Many of you have met my dad. Um, he's wonderful. He's an amazing guy. But he could not hold a pitch or sing on tune to save his life. And yet, and so while it might hurt your ears or my ears, I don't particularly like to hear him sing in that way. God does. God loves to hear him sing. And my dad always reminds me or anybody else that talks about his singing, hey, the Bible doesn't say sing on pitch. It just says make a joyful noise. And so he's doing that. And maybe that's you, but we need to find the joy in worshiping and singing. It is a privilege to get to come and to sing and honor him in that respect. Verse 3 continues, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. I want you to think about this word, know. Know that He, know that the Lord and that He is good, or that He is God. Know that the Lord, He is God. And I would say, if you're filling in the blanks, number three would be this. Stop every day. Every day, stop and think about the size of God. Every day, pause and think about the size of God. You know, He didn't have to make you, but He did. He doesn't have to love you, but He does. He doesn't have to forgive you, and yet He does that over and over and over again as well when we just simply repent. You know, in the context of trying to stop and ponder the size of God... Let me just take you, I wish we had time to read it, but Isaiah chapter 40 is one of my two or three favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It's incredible. You might even jot that down and go home and meditate on it. If you want to pause and think about the size of God, Isaiah 40 is an incredible chapter to help you do that. But in that context, let me share with you a couple of interesting thoughts that come out of reading that. You know, um, the Bible tells us, well, no, the scientists. Scientists tell us that the ocean contains more than 340 quintillion gallons of water. 340 quintillion gallons. How much water can you hold in your hand? Let's see. Um, maybe, maybe a teaspoon? Maybe? Okay. It'll dry. It'll dry. It's Okay. Maybe a teaspoon for me, that, and I have a kind of average-sized hand. God, the Bible says, can hold all of the waters of our earth in the small of His hand or in the, whole of his, the hollow of His hand, 340 quintillion gallons of water. How big is our God? And you think, well, what is a quintillion anyway? Let me show you some numbers. Everybody knows what a million looks like, one with the six zeros up there at the top. Then a billion, it's hard to fathom what a billion is, but a billion is a thousand millions. I mean, that's really almost too much to really grasp, but that's just getting started because then you have a thousand billions is a trillion, and then I have to look because I can't remember the other ones. The next one is a thousand trillions equals a quadrillion, and a thousand quadrillions equals a quintillion, and a thousand of those equals a sextillion. And the reason all of those are relevant, which by the way, that's 21 zeros behind a number one. The earth weighs, according to scientists, six sextillion metric tons. Okay, I, I don't even, 
have an ability to begin to comprehend that. But it's a massive number, and yet the, the God of our universe, the God who loves you, the God who sent His only Son to die for you, is so big, if you stop and consider this, it's mind-blowing, that He measures that like dust on the scales. It's like, again, something He could put in His hand. That's how big our God is. Wow. You know, the speed of light, speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. 186,000. How many of you have ever had or currently have a car that has 186,000 miles on it? All right, so that's a lot of miles, right? Maybe it took you, even if you drive a lot, five or six years to get there. Some of you, you know, my car is 20 years old and it still doesn't have that many miles on it. So maybe it takes you 20 years or more to get that many miles on your car. The speed of light is that many miles in one second. One second. Do you know how many seconds there are in a year? Over 31 and a half million seconds in a year. And the speed of light is that distance, 186,000 miles, every second. And check this out. Um, where am I at here? There are 90 billion light years of... The, the, the known universe stretches out for more than 90 billion light years. So, what does that mean? I mean, well, the Bible tells us, again, in Isaiah 40, if you go read that, that, that He measures the universe by the width of His hand. So, the width of His hand, I mean, when you start thinking about distance, 186,000 miles per second and, and then 90 billion light years, when you start thinking about that, how big does that paint a picture of our God? Wow. You know, and our solar system is just one of one small part of our Milky Way galaxy, and scientists, listen to this, believe that there are more than 100 billion other galaxies, 100 billion other galaxies, and each one of those 100 billion galaxies have at least 100 billion stars in them. And yet Isaiah chapter 40, guess what? Tells us that God has named every one of those stars. Wow. There aren't anywhere near that many words in our language, not even close, and yet He has all of them named. So stop every day and think about the size of God, and here's why. If you stop and think about the size of God and the fact that He is big enough to take care of this universe, do you not think maybe He's big enough to take care of you and me and our issues, our struggles? Yes, He is. He is, and there is joy that flows downstream from that understanding. That's something to rejoice about. All right, again, in verse 3, the Bible tells us here in Psalm 100, know that the Lord, He is God. Stop and think about His size. He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So when you think about the size of God, and then you remember that He loved us so much that He sent His only Son to die for us, I would tell you, you need to stop. You need to be thankful that we get to have a relationship with Him. Our, our, the church thing, our relationship thing, spiritual stuff, that is not a have-to thing. It is a get-to thing. We get to be in relationship with Almighty God. Think how big He is, how small we are, and yet He wants to be in relationship with me. I'm like, wow, why? I'm so tiny, insignificant to, compared to Him, or at least it would seem that. And yet He wants to be in relationship with me. You know, we used to have to go through someone else, a priest, generally, to get to the Lord. 
to the Lord who resided in the temple. This is all in the Old Testament, in the Holy of Holies, the innermost room where the Ark of the Covenant was, where only once a year could that high priest go in. And even then he had to have a rope tied around his foot just in case something terrible would happen and he would die. Nobody else could go in because they would probably die too. So they would tie a rope around his foot so they could pull him out just in case something happened. There was distance, in other words, between us and the Lord to some degree, but not anymore. Not anymore. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Bible makes it clear that, that God wants to be, He wants to reside in our heart, in our, in our soul, in who we are. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. The God of the universe, who we just tried to, with our very finite minds, try to imagine how big He is, He wants to take up residence in our home, in your life, in your heart. What an incredible thought. You know, God even tore open the, the curtain to the Holy of Holies when Jesus died on the cross for us to show us that now we all have access to Him through the blood of Jesus. That is incredible. And when you pause and really let that soak in, which it takes some time to do that, but as you begin to do that, I just pray that God will help you be joyful and see that there is so much to be excited about that we get to have a relationship with God. You know, this word know, you know, that know that the Lord, He is God, this word K-N-O-W is the same Old Testament word that God used to describe the oneness between a husband and a wife. Isn't that kind of an interesting thought? God uses this word to point to spiritual oneness in the way that we kind of tend to think of the physical intimacy and oneness that we have, which is a beautiful thing, but He's saying, oh, it's way better than that. It's way beyond that. You know, a common denominator that I've seen in a lot of situations when I talk with people that are struggling, you know, when they say, I need to talk to a pastor. Scott, would you stop and just spend some time, pray with me, talk with me about something? One of the key things that I see often um, in place in that moment is that, that they will often say, I have it here. I, I know it. I just don't feel it. Have you ever been there? I know it in my head, but it just doesn't really connect and doesn't make that 18-inch distance down here to my heart, and I don't really feel it. Yeah, I know it on paper. I get, I've get. i read that and seen that, and I maybe even memorized that in the Bible, but I don't necessarily feel it. Well, if that's you, if you're struggling to go from knowing something to feeling it or knowing it in the right way, then I want you to think about that word, this concept, K-N-O-W, to know God. It's the same word about intimacy that God talks about when a husband and wife will become one. Think about what it takes to develop that true intimacy. Think about how much openness and vulnerability and trust and pursuit and eye contact and listening skills and all these things that are involved in a healthy marriage relationship. And understand that God, the creator of the universe, wants to have that kind of an intimate relationship with you. What an incredible thought. He wants to develop that kind of relationship. So often people have this mindset that God wants to, whatever, maintain a lot of distance and way up there and we're way down here. And yeah, once in a while, if you, excuse me, God, can I just have a moment of your time? I want to ask you a question. It's not like that. He wants you to know that He wants to be with you. He wants to be your best friend. Jesus wants to be your best friend. The Holy Spirit wants to be your guide and comforter. God wants to be all of this and so much more to you. And all we have to do is develop that relationship and come to Him. All who are, are, are weary and heavy burdened, and He will give us rest, God's Word says. We are His people, 
this passage says. We are also, this passage says, the sheep of His pasture. Again, there's a connection, a relationship. We are His people, and He is our good shepherd. Now, some people ask, generally, you know, maybe people who haven't read much of Scripture yet, or maybe it's a child, they go, yeah, what's up with the whole shepherd and sheep analogy? We see that in the Bible a lot. Why does God make a big deal about that? Well, I would tell you it's, for one, because sheep have a tendency to stray. That is just who they are. That's their DNA. Left to themselves, sheep wander off and get in trouble. And don't you and I have a lot in common with sheep? Again, from Isaiah, this time, chapter 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned and gone our own way. The other thing about sheep is that they need a shepherd. Sheep are totally defenseless. Even if they stayed put, they are totally defenseless. They cannot take care of themselves, fight off any predator of any kind. They need a shepherd. And don't you and I have a lot in common with them again in that way? That's, that's why David talked about the Lord is my shepherd. And, and, and today we know that the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd that David talked about. And in, and in John chapter 10, verse 10, um, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly or have it to the full. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, check this out, the good shepherd gives his life or lays down his life for his sheep. The God of the, crea- of the cosmos that we just contemplated pausing to stop and consider the size of Him, He loved you and me so much that He sent His only Son to lay down His life for us, the defenseless, small, and weak sheep. Does that not bring joy? Is that not a reason for joy? Wow, what an incredible, amazing thought. Jesus proved He was the good shepherd when He died on that cross. And now when we turn to our risen Christ and turn to Him as our Savior and Lord, verse 3 becomes the reality of our life. Because we know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us. We are not our own. He, uh, we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So rejoice and be thankful that you get to have a relationship with God. What a privilege. And then, as we close this little short chapter, then verse 4 and 5 come to life as well. Because verse 4 is based on verse 3. Verse 4 says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name. Oh, there is so much power in, an, in having an attitude of gratitude, of looking for ways to be grateful, to look around and see the joy and the goodness of this world and say, Oh, dear God, thank you. You know, when Kim... When, when Kim and Kristen Tessing came back from Africa just a couple of weeks ago and shared with us some of what they learned, there was a lot of good stuff. But my favorite piece or the thing that really hit me the most right between the eyes was when they said, you know, the people there in Africa who have so much more need, physical needs anyway, than what we have. They have so many more needs than us. Despite the fact that they have more need than us, they ask for a lot less from God than we tend to. What an incredible thought. I thought, why is that? Well, I think it's because they get this. They understand that. They like to. They enjoy entering His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. They love to bless His name. They focus not so much on their needs, but focus on the omnipotence and the incredible truth of who God is, and they worship Him. They love to worship Him, and we have a lot to learn from our African brothers and sisters in that respect. I love that. And then verse 5 
which kind of wraps that up. This is what those what our African brothers and sisters in Christ understand because they know that the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. In other words, life may be hard. Yes, it might. It, it will in one way or another. It might be right now for you. But no matter what this life throws your direction, no matter what, in the end, you will win. Be, not because of what you brought to the table, but because of who God is. Amen? Because Jesus gave his life for you. You can smile and have joy no matter what comes your way because in the end, you will win if you are connected to Almighty God in relationship with him, which you get to have that relationship because of his steadfast, enduring love and faithfulness and the prize to which we are called that Paul talked about and, and this heaven that Jesus talked about going and preparing a place for us in John 14. All of this is what brings us to the place of going, wow, it doesn't matter what happens in this life, really. It's just a short, brief, and momentary thing. And as I get prepared to go to heaven and spend all eternity with Him, I am joyful no matter what this world brings because of this relationship that I get to have. You know, there's a lot more in the Bible about joy than just this. There are, again, over 257 verses, at least that many, in Scripture about joy. But these five verses are pretty powerful. And I'd like to encourage you to do this. One more piece of homework. Go home this week and meditate on it. Read it over and over and over several times. Maybe look it up in other translations and let it soak into who you are. But will you do this with me? Will you stand? And before we sing and have a response time where we, where we respond to God's love and His goodness and His gospel, let's read this passage together. Verse 1 goes like this. Say it out loud with me. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. Oh dear God, we thank You for Your love. And as we sing about it, and as we think about coming to the altar, Lord, lay it upon our hearts to honor You and walk with You and respond however You would want. And we just want to again say thank You most of all for Jesus. And it's in His name that we all pray and say,